0: Welcome to Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers, where we talk with and about the foreign banking community in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, and please be sure to subscribe so you never miss a beat with the IIB. Hello, and welcome back to Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers. Uh, we are here today to discuss governance, risk, and compliance affecting foreign banking organizations in the United States. My name is Megan Malloy. Um, I am the Director of Strategic Communications at the IIB, and today I am very excited to welcome to our podcast Alexander Smith and Eric Young. Alex is Deputy Chief of the Criminal Division at the United States Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York, Previously, she served as the chief of the Eastern District's business and securities fraud section. Alex has an impressive background investigating and successfully prosecuting a wide variety of criminal matters against both individuals and entities. And Eric is senior managing director of Guidepost Solutions LLC, probably familiar to many of our IIB members here. Um, Guidepost is an established monitoring, consulting, and investigative firm with operations across the globe um, and known to many FBOs. Uh, previously, Eric was a chief compliance officer for almost 40 years with J.P. Morgan Chase, four international banks, including UBS and most recently BNP Paribas. I am very excited that Alex and Eric have agreed to join our podcast to talk about the DOJ's, DOJ's expectations of corporate compliance today, and to hear a longtime chief compliance officer provide his perspectives on everything. Alex, Eric, welcome to our show. Um, I'd just love for for both of you to tell our audience a little more about your journey to the Department of Justice, Alex, obviously, and Eric as a former Chief Compliance Officer now at a multi-client firm uh, working with a number of financial institutions. How how'd y'all get here?
1: Sure. So thank you so much for having me, Megan. And before I speak, I always give my standard government disclaimer um, that everything I say today uh, represents my views and not the views of my office or the department of justice in general. Um, So with that said, I have been at the US Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York for a little more than 10 years now. Um, I started off in our general crime section. I spent some time doing organized crime and gang work. And then I spent most of my time in the office in our business and securities fraud section uh, as a line AUSA, uh, as a supervisor, and then as the, the chief of that section and I have worked on a wide variety of fraud cases um, related to financial crime, um, including as particularly relevant, I think to this audience, uh, corporate crime, um, focusing on securities fraud, commodities fraud, um, investment advisor fraud, FCPA violations, et cetera. Um, I'll also add that before I joined the office, I worked in private practice for a number of years in New York and in that role, I helped advise clients with respect to their compliance programs, as well as in connection with investigations and prosecutions. So I have some experience on the defense side as well as in government.
2: And, and uh, it's, it's Eric Young. Thank you again, uh, Megan, for having us. I'm happy to be here. So I'm here after, as you said, many years as a chief compliance officer most of which have been with foreign banks. Um, I teach ethics and compliance at Fordham School of Law as well, and wrote a book about compliance best practices, particularly from the perspective of a CCO. So what brought me to GuidePose, and I joined in January, essentially is to give back, uh, share my experiences of what works well for, in this case, a foreign banking organization uh, before issues arise before prosecution occurs, and hopefully before remediation and and a monitoring uh, is required. Uh, My last point is I I joined um, one institution after they were heavily sanctioned and subject to a monitorship, and uh, it was a fantastic experience as the receiving end, uh, believe it or not, of a monitor to the extent that I saw what worked well and what enabled the organization to ultimately resolve the issues and ultimately succeed. Um, But it was a lot of work uh, and that's part of what I'd like to share.
0: Well, thank you both. It is fantastic to have y'all here. I think especially with the continuous buzz across the globe really about the very visible and I would say quite vigorous steps that the Department of Justice is taking to prosecute companies, including financial institutions um, and individuals, as as y'all referenced, uh, for their specific criminal violations and misconduct. Um, Obviously, as you both know, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco's and Assistant Attorney General Ken Polite's public speeches most recently uh, at the Compliance Week uh, Annual Conference in DC last May, they both made very clear that DOJ plans to scrutinize one, the role, stature, and authority of the Chief Compliance Officer Two, whether corporate culture evidenced by the company's board of directors, CEO, and C-suite is the right one. Three, whether a company's corporate compliance program is, quote, working in practice continuously. And four, that complying effectively today and going forward is a matter of national security, also in quotes. Uh, they've also made clear that DOJ is willing to use monitorships to achieve those goals. So. You know those of us in the fbo industry we are also very interested in the doj's emphasis on serial recidivist violations as a reflection of a company's corporate culture uh, and the role played by by those individuals by the ceo and those in the c-suite um you know i think it's it's fair to say that this this energized we'll call it doj focus on corporate culture is making ceos and c-suites uh shall we say excited uh interested <laughs> maybe Uh, But for very different reasons, you know, I think they'll be much more accountable for corporate wrongdoing. So, uh, Alex and Eric, y'all are here uh, as the real attorneys uh, to to help us explore each of these today in our episode. So let's 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 dive right in. First, let's talk about spoofing. Um, J.P. Morgan's prosecution and the recent trial of the individual defendants there. Um, First, I'll turn to Alex, you know, what makes this case unique and what is it about the case that's concerning about recidivist behavior of banks and other financial institutions? And then and after you answer that, Eric, I want to turn to you. And you know, you've know, you had so much experience as a chief compliance officer. What do you think, and in your tenure um, in, in so many banks, what are the root causes of recidivist behavior and violations of, of very well-established firms, whether they're US-based or FBOs? So Though we know that all the FBOs are perfect little angels. <laughs> just kidding, Alex. Over to you.
1: Yeah. So to so start out, it's it's interesting. I want to just flag the recidivism point for a minute because I think this is something we're going to come back to. One of the major um, sort of shifts in focus that uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco mentioned in her speech in October of 2021, where she sort of laid out the current department's view on a number of issues related to corporate crime was this recidivism point. And one thing that she said was that the department was gonna start looking sort of at corporate criminal histories more broadly, more in the way in which that we look at individual criminal histories. So when an individual is charged um, and if they're convicted, then at sentencing, the judge looks at all of their sort of past criminal conduct, whether or not it's similar to the charge. So if I am a defendant who's committed bank fraud, but in the past, um, I also committed a completely separate crime, say drug trafficking, the judge at sentencing would take both of those into account. Um, and the DAG basically said that this principle would be applied to corporations as well. Traditionally, when we looked at corporate resolutions and we're talking about recidivism, we were looking at the same conduct. So if I am a corporation who commits an FCPA violation, then for the res- purposes of being a recidivist, the department would look at whether or not the company had prior FCPA Uh, violations. Now, uh, the department has been instructed to look more broadly, not just at violations in the same sort of type of crime area, but more generally. And so I just want to sort of put a pin in that for everybody to think about as we talk through the spoofing cases um, and some of these other prosecutions, because going forward, whether or not a company like JP Morgan or Deutsche Bank, which are the two companies we're going to talk about, in the spoofing context in the future committed another type of crime that wasn't specifically spoofing, this would then cause them to be considered a recidivist um, from the department's perspective. So it's it's good to keep in mind as we talk about all of these cases. I think with the spoofing cases um, and JP Morgan in particular, and I should say I did not work on the case and have no non-public information, um, but I think it's interesting at the, the sort of time period that it covered, the the conduct ran from 2008 to 2016. Um, and there were a number of points along the way at which J.P. Morgan had been advised internally of this conduct um, and had been raised to the compliance department and nothing had been done about it. And so even within a single case, I think there was an issue of you know whether or not the company acknowledged and addressed the behavior and also took steps to prevent it and and that was part of the compliance failure that led to uh the corporate resolution with jp morgan uh, which was announced in september of 2020 with both the department of justice and then on the civil side um, the cftc uh, for basically a number of their employees and executives engaging in this spoofing activity um, over that significant period of time so when we talk about recidivism like i said i think we think about it a little bit both in the context of you know a particular course of conduct and then again going forward this will be something that will cause both of those banks to be considered a recidivist if there are any problems in the future Um, i think what made it a very interesting case again, is that it was, um, it was sort of one of the first big corporate cases to come out of this spoofing conduct. There was a lot of public statements from the department that this was the result of looking at some additional data and using data analytics to look at trading and to find um, irregularities that led to the spoofing investigations. And this uh, corporate prosecution, as well as the prosecution of a number of individuals, at J.P. Morgan, uh, two of whom were just convicted uh, at individual trial in August. So it's a a case that sort of touches on a lot of these issues that we're gonna talk about today.
2: And I would add that um, one spoofing is illegal. Second, it's a subset of a broader cultural issue, uh, which is really thematically what we're talking about because as Alex correctly points out, the DOJ and other regulators are looking at patterns of behavior at the end of the day. And and institutions do have as a collection of individuals, a pattern of of behavior, spoofing, LIBOR, FX, um, other asset classes are expected to be conducted in a fair and proper manner to uh, ultimately enable fair markets and uh, protection of of investors in this case or consumers that, that invest insecurities or other instruments. So um, the DOJ approach to to look at not only a narrow scope of a specific type of illegality or misconduct to a much broader sense of behavioral patterns over time I think is key and and a strong message for um, FBOs in this case.
0: Thanks, Eric, and thanks, Alex. And just for a point of personal privilege, I once had the word recidivist in a spelling bee in fifth grade, Uh, I missed it, and I had not heard it as much (laughs) since then. So thank you both for that uh, little bit of PTSD in the Mississippi State spelling bee. Um, just Turn over to a a different case here, Uh, Goldman Sachs and Roger Ung. Um, Alex, kick this one over to you, uh, but Eric, I'd invite you to chip in. Uh, with your thoughts as a Chief Compliance Officer. So what's the significance of compliance in the context of the one MDB case, uh, the guilty plea of Goldman, Asia Banker, Tim Leisner, um, and most recently the April 2022 conviction of uh, Roger Ong, obviously Goldman's Malaysia Banker. Um, And then secondly, why is it so noteworthy noteworthy from a corporate and individual criminal liability perspective uh, triggered by the FCPA?
1: Sure, and I can start with this one. This is a case I did work on personally, both the the corporate case and I was the lead AUSA at trial. And so again, I'm just gonna focus on publicly available information. But when we talk about the corporate compliance program um, with respect to the Goldman case, there's sort of two components. One is that the bank pled guilty to FCPA violations of the anti-bribery statute um, for in fact, participating in a conspiracy to um, bribe a number of foreign officials in Malaysia and in Abu Dhabi in order to uh, obtain and retain business related to 1MDB. And so there, there is sort of a core FCPA conspiracy. And in the corporate resolution, it was the, the statement of facts made clear that the bank's um, participated in that conspiracy through a number of their executives, including uh, Tim Leisner and Roger Ong. So that that's sort of the core of the case. From an uh, accounting controls perspective and compliance perspective, what's very interesting is that we also charge the individuals with circumventing Goldman's internal accounting controls. And it was the first time, the Roger Ong trial was the first time that that charge, which is also an FCPA charge, but is separate from the anti-bribery charges, was actually um, brought to trial. So it's the first time that an individual defendant went to trial on a charge of circumventing the company's uh, internal accounting controls. And in that case, in that charge, um, Goldman's compliance functions were actually circumvented by the individual executives at goldman so the charge was that the you know publicly traded companies like goldman are required to have under 15 usc 78m they're required to have a system of internal accounting controls to make sure that their assets because they're a public company are properly Um, accounted for and that everything has proper authorization um, before that money sort of goes out the door and that the assets are permitted to be accessed only in accordance with management's authorization and that everything is sort of done in, in compliance with those internal accounting controls. And the circumvention charge is that the individual executives in conjunction with other individuals in the conspiracy um, sought to circumvent or get around those internal controls in order to get these particular deals done. And it's the first time like I said that these this type of a charge was brought against an individual at trial. And what I think makes it really interesting is that there was a dispute between the government, how we charged it and how the defense actually saw that charge. Um, from the government's perspective, we, Uh, Our jury instructions, which the court ultimately adopted, said that you could circumvent internal accounting controls, which in this case were the committees at the bank that approved the deals. Um, From the government's perspective and what we argued at trial was that Roger Ung and Tim Leisner and others basically provided false information to those committees in order to get the committees to sign off on the deals so, for example, they didn't tell the committees. That they were going to be paying bribes in connection with the deal to get it done, because had they told the compliance committees that the committees would not have signed off on the deal. And so, from our perspective that is circumvention you provide false information internally at your organization, the organization then signs off based on that false information you have circumvented the accounting controls the defense said, actually, circumvention is only if you don't go to the accounting controls at all. So you can't circumvent by fraud. You can only circumvent by um, uh, falsifying the authorizations with somehow saying that the bank authorized it when they didn't, or not getting authorization at all and using the bank's assets. But if you actually go to the committee, even if you provide them false information, they have authorized the transaction. And so that was sort of the big dispute at trial the court ultimately agreed with us and the jury found as a matter of fact that they had obtained that committee authorization by fraud. But I think it's gonna be a really interesting issue on appeal because I have no doubt that as the first time uh, this has been discussed, it will be appealed and the second circuit will look at it. And I think it raises interesting questions for what does it mean for a company's authorization process to work. And if somebody is providing the company with false information, which was done here, does that somehow protect the company sort of from an authorization perspective? How much due diligence does the company need to do on the information that they're getting when they're signing off on the, these types of deals? So I think those are the issues that are sort of percolating, um, both legally, um, in terms of what does what actually will constitute circumvention, but also from the bank's perspective, you know, are they allowed to rely on the information that, that that's being given to them by their executives at the time?
2: And, and I would um, have about four or five points relevant uh, to the audience around extraterritoriality. That's that's one. FCPA has always been extraterritorial. But what's noteworthy about the Goldman case, um, as uh, Alex was very much instrumental in doing, was the real close coordination amongst the foreign home reg- regulators or foreign regulators uh, globally. So the point for the audience, the FBOs, is the need for coordination internally for compliance, finance, management in the U.S. to coordinate very closely as to what's going on in the rest of the organization, whether home office or, or otherwise. Second is um, bank bribery or bribery and corruption. Of course, has been around forever, but it's been very much a focus of the non-banks. Whereas the banks have focused, of course, on AML and sanctions, which we'll talk about later, particularly with sanctions as the new FCPA, as as uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco has said. But it, it underscores that banks, um, foreign and otherwise, are quite as uh, vulnerable, accountable to FCPA, the UK Bribery Act, as, as they must be with AML and sanctions, and therefore that third leg of the triumvirate of financial crime controls is critically important, uh, especially because bribe and corruption is much more difficult to monitor and demonstrate that the controls are actually working in in practice. Next is the fact that in this case, Goldman, but certainly others um, is guilty of of this and and convicted with, with individuals being found uh criminally uh liable and uh, those are noteworthy of course so the risks are real stakes are much higher and uh, the impact and therefore the coordination between finance as alex has pointed out management uh, and compliance really must go hand in hand they they cannot be operating in a silo within the u.s or uh, home office but certainly on a consolidated basis to capture these types of activities
0: so I just want to switch gears a little bit um, for for our next bit of the conversation and go into independent monitorships. Uh, Alex, can you just kind of, you know, I think most folks listening know generally what independent monitorships are, but uh, for those that haven't maybe had so much experience with with them, um, can you just briefly give us the the purpose and and role of independent monitors, especially from your your point of view at DOJ?
1: Sure. So, monitors from our perspective on the criminal side um, are generally imposed in connection with a corporate criminal resolution, whether that's a guilty plea or a non prosecution agreement or a deferred prosecution agreement. But basically, something has gone very wrong at the organization, which has resulted in criminal charges or uh, charges short of a resolution short of charges, but admission of criminal conduct. And a monitor is usually imposed in connection with a NPA or a DPA or a criminal plea for a period of a certain period of years. And it's an external person who's hired separately uh, by the company, which um, becomes sort of an interesting question of how the monitor gets paid and who's... Uh, tracking their costs. And that that's a whole discussion we can have um, if you're interested. Um, but the idea is that they're an independent monitor who comes in and addresses the compliance failures and the corporate culture failures at the company that led to the criminal conduct. And the idea is the monitor comes in and does an analysis of what happened and what can be fixed and reports back to the Department of Justice on a regular timeframe and assures that the the changes that need to be made within the organization to prevent uh, additional criminal conduct are made. And usually the term is for that three-year period. If there is dramatic improvement, sometimes the term can be shorter. If there are continuing issues, sometimes that term can be longer. Um, And so it's one of the tools sort of in the department's toolbox when we're thinking about what can we do to um remediate whatever issue there is at the organization traditionally a monitor is imposed when there is sort of a large-scale breakdown of a compliance program or the absence of one so i worked on the Odebrecht and braskem cases they were um, brazil brazilian-based companies um, that pled guilty to massive FCPA violations in 2016. And neither company really had a compliance structure. So that case was a good example of where the monitor came in and helped set one up. And then sometimes the monitor comes in and helps fix whatever is wrong with the compliance structure. It is a tool, like I said, that's always in the department's toolbox. It's also in the toolboxes of a lot of regulatory agencies. Um, So that's something that we take into account Um, whether or not a regulatory agency like the SEC or the CFTC or even a foreign uh, regulatory agency is is thinking about a monitor in connection with the same conduct. Sometimes um, we sort of, one one law enforcement agency will take the lead on imposing a monitor or receiving reports from one, Um, but it's a way to sort of ensure compliance going forward. Traditionally, um, monitors Uh, Again, we're sort of always available in the the last administration. There was a a bit of a policy statement that suggested that monitors were disfavored and only should be used in really extreme circumstances. The DAG has uh, Lisa Monaco again in her speech last October said that under this administration, there, there won't be a sort of a presumption one way or the other but it's a tool that's available and so um, it is a large cost for an organization, as I said, um, and it certainly um, is a lot of resources and is a very intense step. And so it is something that when we're considering a corporate resolution, again, we look at pervasiveness of conduct within the organization. We might look at recidivism. You know, if this is a company that has had a series of problems um, and a number of other factors to determine whether a monitor should be a component of the resolution.
2: And having, as I mentioned before, been on the receiving end of uh, a monitorship, but um, also on the remediation and transformation side, I I can say with experience that one monitorships, the the experience of one can be quite cathartic for an organization um, to the extent that it is most likely global in nature, uh, enterprise-wide, and um, can be incredibly difficult uh, on the one hand, uh, particularly if the organizational culture is to continue to be defensive and to fight back or be in a state of denial, as some organizations can be before, during, and after. But um, having said that, uh, in contrast, other organizations uh, that I'm aware of can actually have a very productive relationship with the independent monitor, however tough, Uh, to the extent that if it's quite organized by the monitor, and more importantly, quite organized in terms of delivery of documents, responsiveness, um, and attentiveness of the chief executive officer at both the global and the regional levels, that sends an incredibly strong message to the monitor, the DOJ, and the regulators that the organization culturally and otherwise gets it. And that makes the relationship not only productive, but ultimately healthy uh, with with the right outcome. Uh, guidepost, of course, is, is involved with many monitorships with non-banks and, and financial institutions. So I'm happy to say I can speak from experience as to what works and doesn't work.
0: So oh, just a, a quick follow up for both of you from both sides of uh, monitorship. <laughs> These monitors, are they meant to to verify Department of Justice's expectation that compliance programs work in practice, as as I mentioned earlier? Um, And then what makes one monitor better than another? Like, how does DOJ decide which monitor uh, is going to actually oversee a particular uh, remediation?
1: Yeah, so I can take the, I'll take both of those, but I'll take the second one first. There is a, there are a series of memos um, that the department has promulgated over the years that set forth the process by which DOJ chooses monitors. Um, Generally, both the company and the government can propose candidates. I think generally the company proposes a number of candidates. And in my personal experience, when there is a monitorship, um, a a lot of large law firms and other Um, Entities that often serve as monitors sort of get wind of it and and apply, put themselves forward. So normally there's a whole slate of candidates that are interviewed by both uh, the company and by the Department of Justice. And then um, there's a whole process for which we can choose one and the company can object and sort of it's a whole back and forth between the company and DOJ. Um, And then there's some uh, approvals at very high levels before a monitor can be signed off on to make sure there are no conflicts of interest, both with respect to the company, but also with respect to the department and choosing the monitor so it really is supposed to be an independent um, sort of Neutral party that has experience in the area. So, depending on the industry, the monitor may look different. A lot of times, when you're talking about financial institutions, a monitor is a big law firm um, that has experience, you know, either. as internal counsel at a at a bank, or uh, as with banks as clients, and sort of are very familiar with the industry. Sometimes they're ex-regulators um, who then sort of go into the monitor practice. So there's a I think a very good uh, policies in place for actually selecting the monitor. In in cases that I've worked on, sometimes we've also had a, um, a U.S. based monitor. We've also had a foreign. Uh, monitor uh, component um, so that there's uh, somebody on the ground, if the company is not based in the U.S., who can deal with language issues and cultural issues um, more uh, effectively sometimes than a U.S.-based monitor. So, again, for Odebrecht and Brascom, we had excellent U.S.-based monitors for both, but we also had um, monitors, uh, individuals in Brazil who helped those monitors to make sure that those issues were addressed. So that's that sort of standard practice um, for the question of, you know, what's the DOJ looking for and what is the monitor expected to do? Again, it a little bit depends on what the underlying conduct was and what the issue is at the company. So in a case where there's no compliance program in place, it's really about getting one putting one in place and thinking about what that looks like and what the reporting structure is. I think in the case of a company where there is a compliance structure, it's making sure that it's working effectively and again that it sort of depends on what the misconduct was so if the misconduct dealt with third party vendors you might look at what's the system for vetting third party vendors where does that information go how is any how are any issues reported up through the compliance structure and you know looking over the course of those three years, are there issues that arise? What are new processes that can be put in place to sort of address those issues? So it's very case specific. um, And it it really is supposed to be in the best, in the best circumstance, a a dialogue, an ongoing dialogue with the company, the DOJ, and the monitor to to see what the issues are and sort of work on improvements.
2: And I would add that um, ultimately what the firm being monitored looks for is not only resolution but cost effect effectiveness and efficiency but at the same time there needs to be a level of independence of course by the monitor so the optimal monitor let's call it is one that isn't learning the rules for the first time and learning from the organization particularly from a, a an operational perspective what works, what doesn't work, because how can the monitor demonstrate that the firm's controls are actually being remediated unless they have the knowledge. Um, and that's where the practical experience of the monitor, not just from a, a legal and regulatory perspective comes in, but the fact that they know how the processes and systems actually work and whether they're working well in practice.
0: Yeah. Thanks, guys. So I want to turn quickly to individual accountability before we go into uh, C-suite certifications and then closing out with uh, sanctions as the new FCPA for the episode. So, you know, we've, we've mentioned individual accountability throughout, throughout the episode already. Uh, we know DOJ is focused on individual accountability. You know, y'all want to know that the buck stops somewhere when looking at these compliance departments. Alex, can you just tell me a little bit about what DOJ is doing there and and really just how y'all are thinking about um, individual accountability?
1: So I think there's sort of two ways in which this comes up. One way is in connection with the underlying crime or issue um, that the DOJ is investigating. So um, the DOJ is always sort of focused both on individuals and corporations. Again, there's been a little bit of a shift um, depending on the administration on how much focus DOJ puts on companies when they're cooperating or providing information, um, how much information they need to provide about individuals involved in misconduct. There's the 2015, the Yates memo um, under the Obama administration basically said that for companies to get full cooperation credit, they would need to provide all information about individuals who are involved in misconduct under the last administration, that was tweaked slightly, and it was all individuals who were substantially involved in misconduct, and this administration has sort of tweaked that back and said, no, it's everyone involved in misconduct. So the idea is that the DOJ is always focused on um, not only pursuing corporate resolutions, but also the underlying individuals who are involved in the wrongdoing. So sometimes when you talk about individual accountability, we talk about it from that sort of criminal liability perspective. But I do think that there's also sort of a component of that that addresses individual accountability within the compliance program structure. And that is really about what you mentioned earlier, the C-suite certifications and the idea being that an effective compliance program has a, a, a reporting structure that ultimately results in somebody in the c-suite being responsible for oversight of compliance program and that that issues really are raised up and that compliance has the resources that they need to be effective and so within the compliance program structure individual accountability is really about whether or not the buck as you said stops with somebody with authority to do something about an issue and an effective compliance program is always going to be one where you know tone from the top and where somebody in the C suite is you know feels compliance is important and issues get raised up and and dealt with appropriately And so sometimes there's a concern from the government side that the compliance structure sort of free floats within an organization and issues don't get addressed because they don't get raised up where they need to get raised up. Um, And and so that's something else the DOJ is always focused on, both when looking at specific instances of misconduct and and when evaluating uh, how effective a company's compliance program actually is.
2: And I I know we're going to talk more about certifications in a moment, but the, the key stroke of genius, as I like to say, that the DOJ um, imposed is that it connects management with compliance. And if you add the board of directors, particularly in the foreign banking context, the larger ones, which have intermediate holding companies with independent board directors, liability comes into play uh, of the directors uh, based on the actions of, of of local management as well as um, overseas activities that, which may impact the, uh, instit- the FBO in the US. Um, so uh, accountability, liability become even more uh, pronounced in terms of uh, ultimately what could become cro- prosecution and, and certification, because um, ultimately it's about people and the actions of, of people and that's why uh, the certifications really sends a, a, a chilling you know, message if you will as a what could happen but hopefully it's also a deterrent as to what shouldn't happen
0: so as you teed up so nicely for me eric uh, let's let's do go into these ceo and cco certifications you know there's a lot of talk uh i would say about the department of justice's expectation that some CEOs and CCOs certify that their corporate compliance programs, at least for FCPA uh, and and I think going forward for sanctions purposes, are effective. Um, so Alex, a couple of questions for you and Eric. You know, please continue um, chiming in as you have. First, what what is the purpose uh, and and the goal of these certifications? You know, why why are they going to make a difference in enabling a compliance program to be quote unquote working in practice, as we've used so many times. Um, and are they going to be for FCPA only, or is this going to be kind of an enterprise-wide um, situation? And second, can you give me some examples of leading um, or of best practices in which these certifications really have made a difference? Because you know, I'm thinking like Sarbanes-Oxley certifications have been around for years, uh, but you know, we're, we still continue to see some financial accounting fraud. So how are these certifications uh, going to be different and actually pre- preventing uh, that wrongdoing?
1: So in terms of whether they'll be used more broadly than uh, the FCPA space, it's hard to know. I know that it's not unusual within the department for the FCPA unit, which really does a lot of corporate uh, prosecutions, maybe more than any other unit. I'm, I don't know the statistics, but they do do quite an, a fair number of them to be a little bit at the leading edge of um, how different aspects of corporate resolutions get rolled out. So they were one of the first to have uh, a corporate enforcement policy. They gave a certain percentage off for cooperation. Um, They have a declination policy, which all components of the DOJ uh, don't have. And so it's it's not unusual to see DOJ in the FCPA unit try out um, various um, different Programs and approaches. And so I think it's not a surprise that this is where it would first appear, and it may wind up being a component of other resolutions with other aspects of the DOJ as well. I I definitely take your point about SOC certifications and the fact that we still have accounting fraud um, at companies. I I do think that it it matters, again, when we're talking about tone from the top and uh, individual being on the hook and the C-suite being engaged. And so I think it's an I think the idea is, and the same with SOC certifications, is to ensure that there is a level of scrutiny from top down of these programs and that issues again that that might create problems down the line and lead to criminal charges would actually get elevated sooner and dealt with uh, more quickly and that bad actors are identified and that ultimately if you have to sign off as the CFO or the CEO, that you are prioritizing compliance and, and making it a, a big component of the business and and not sort of pushing it to the side. I have prosecuted cases um, where we have prosecuted uh, CEOs and CFOs for uh, false statements in public filings. Um, the Grubisich case, which is component of the Odebrecht case. He was the CEO of Brascom, which was the major subsidiary. One of the charges that was brought against him was um, filing false reports because their books and records um, had false information about payments that were allegedly to vendors, which were in fact slush fund money that was used for bribes. Uh, And so it, it can be a very effective prosecution tool. And I do think that it, it puts the C-suite on notice in a more direct way of what potential issues might be and and hopefully incentivizes organizations to really prioritize uh, dealing with those problems and, and sort of making compliance the focus of, or a focus of what they're doing rather than having everything being run um, only from the business side. Obviously these certifications get put in place in connection again with a resolution. So something has gone wrong. And then what we're asking the company to do is, you know, going forward to certify during that time period that they have gone back and triple checked (laughs) that there aren't any issues. And so it's a way to ensure that for an organization that has had an, had a problem historically that, that they are working on it and they're not just working on it at lower levels of the organization but the working on it from the top down
2: i don't disagree that there are challenges with the um, with with SOC certifications particularly in some ways management relies on the external accounting firm almost as a crutch because they're independently certifying uh, that the controls are in place now three other certification requirements where i believe are working more effectively, including, and especially for foreign banks, are uh, the Bulker rule in which the CEO uh, needs to certify. And so having been there, done that with uh, Volcker, um, the CEO um, is very focused, laser focused on how does the process work? Um, who's sub-certifying before I even think of cer- uh, signing um, and it creates a level of uh, focus across the organization. That's culture. Um, that's connecting the dots and also mapping out processes, which might be either very overlapping. But I, I always say where there's overlap, there's probably gaps in controls. And so in that sense, uh, Volker works. And I think time will tell us. We're starting to see that uh, there's some um, enforcement actions around Volcker. I would say uh, DFS, uh, New York State DFS rules 500 and 504 around uh, fiber and AML and sanctions, which we'll get into hopefully in a moment around the new FCPA also creates a lot of, um, one certification requirements, but two around who does what, how, where, and uh, the DFS rules really is three dimensional around, um, not only the number of alerts and the types of rules, but the data governance and the integrity. And that means all controls across the organization really need to one, know their uh, swim lanes and processes, most, most importantly, how they fit in in terms of controls and sub-certifications, again, leading up to uh, CEO and compliance or other operational uh, certifications. So the DOJ requirements, I would say, um, look to those lessons learned, but also really very pointed stick at the end of the resolution of a DPA or, or prosecution, expect not only the certifications to be signed, but to demonstrate that these controls, not only work in practice, but are sustained year over year over year on a continuous basis.
0: Thanks, guys. So just to, to close us out with everyone's favorite topic, uh sanctions. Um, you know, we're still watching Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, we're still watching the international, really unprecedented rollout of economic sanctions, um, you know, as they just continue to ramp up against Russia and its designated nationals. So, you know, this all this kind of in the background. DOJ has said, and I think verbatim, that sanctions is the new FCPA. Um, so Eric, I wanna start with you on this one. Can you just kind of explain what this means? Um, you know, what, what does DOJ mean when they're saying that sanctions is the new FCPA? And how does this fit into the context of our larger discussion uh, regarding DOJ's evaluation of effective compliance programs? And Alex, please, please feel free to, to chip in here
2: too so yes the doj is uh, very uh, visibly noted that sanctions is the new fcpa and as we've discussed earlier fcpa is is a, a high inherent and residual risk uh, not only for non-banks but for for banks sanctions is uh critical because it involves Uh, geopolitics. It involves uh, war and the flow of of money. Um, And like the FCPA, it involves extraterritoriality and the need and cooperation of multiple countries. So foreign banks, whether they clear dollars in the U.S. or uh, work with the the flow of money with their home office or their affiliates in other regions, need to be keenly aware of uh, the sanctions requirements, which one, continuously change, and two, involve multiple countries which are not identical to one another in terms of uh, the prohibitions. Second, in terms of the compliance requirements, it crystallizes uh, the importance of compliance coordinating with finance and operations in a time-critical way to flag, identify, block, report uh, assets that need to be um identified frozen forfeited uh, whatever the case may be and involving all levels of of management Um, and final point is given the geopolitical consequences of money flowing into the wrong hands and other countries not uh, participating in the sanctions the stakes are very high and that's why as as you rightly opened um, that it's a matter of national security can't get much higher in terms of of risk and stakes. um, And we don't want to wait till prosecutions and certifications to be able to prevent, let alone detect uh, violations of sanctions in this regard.
1: No, I think that's all correct. I think um, what the DAG was focused on was sort of this overlap between corporate crime and national security concerns that I think the war in Russia has really brought to the forefront in terms of you know, concerns about money laundering to evade sanctions or terrorist group financing, uh, various cyber crime activities and how corporate organizations might inadvertently or uh, improperly, one way or the other, facilitate some of those activities and that the department is going to be very focused on um, looking at organizations that further again inadvertently or directly money laundering efforts uh, to in this area and and i think it's it's just something that the the department has always focused on but i don't think it has been quite as discussed as the fcpa work and i think that what the department's going to be looking at are a lot of similar themes that we've been talking about in terms about in terms of organizations' existing compliance programs um, and if they're designed to identify and deal with these issues uh, sort of related to sanctions violations and money laundering uh, the same way that you know we would look out for issues related to bribery. So it's really just taking the same concerns about organizations and and shifting them in in a different subject matter area, but I think what the department will be looking at in terms of what the organization has done is going to be very similar than they would in any other uh, corporate uh, criminal prosecution. Well, I
0: will close it on that note, and thank you both so much for your time, your experience, your... uh... Your your wisdom on on the podcast here. There's a lot to discuss. Obviously, these things evolve. There will always be lots more to discuss. So, uh, please do not be surprised if we bug you again uh, for a a round two of uh, the Alex and Eric show here. So, thank you both. Uh, be well, and uh, we will talk with you soon.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you again for joining us for Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers. We hope you enjoyed, and we hope to see you again soon for the next episode.